morning, church. Um, uh, if you're kind of uh, sitting and there's lots of space around you, would you squeeze a little bit and let the deacons in the back know? And so folks don't have to sit all the way in the back if they don't have to. Um, and just remember, there's always room in the front row. I'm not sure why, but... Um, as Pastor Greg started with, the, with Revelation a few weeks ago, um, he shared with you the idea that this word apocalypse has taken on this terrible sort of air, air about it. This idea that it's some horrible thing. You know, there was a movie called Apocalypse Now. And you know what that movie, you know what that title means? It means the revealing now. It's really not all that scary when you say that. But when you, you know, use the Latin, it sounds a lot more scary. Apocalypse. Sounds like something bad's going to happen because that's the tone we've thrown onto this text. Thank you, sir. We have, we have said this thing is about some horrible, scary, awful thing, and it's about a revealing. And that's what we've been trying to emphasize with you. You know, we've been through a revelation together several times as a church, and um, it's hard to, to constantly uh, find ways to share it with you that will keep your attention, honestly. And so as we talked about this, we talked about wanting to, to emphasize what it's really saying about itself. It says, I have come to reveal something to you. This is the revelation, the, the, the story, the information, a revealing, an unfolding of things that you don't know. Okay? The book, the story, is about a revealing. Okay? So when somebody says, hey, we're going to see what's behind door number one, do you get nervous? No. She's just going to reveal what's behind door number one, right? We're going to see what's behind door number two. Right? We're going to reveal it. We're going to tell some things that are going on there. Now, some of the things that are being revealed aren't wonderful. In fact, some of them are downright awful looking. But they're being also revealed for a reason. Don't forget they're also being revealed to help us, not to scare us. God does not write books in the Bible designed to frighten us. He writes books in the Bible and events in the Bible drawn, designed to draw us into that relationship, to draw us closer to him, to build the strength of our courage and our relationship with him, to help us trust him more and build faith in him. All right? All right? All right. Okay. So as we start in Revelation today, I just want to start with John chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, because I want you to see what Jesus says about revealing things that are coming that are a little bit odd or different or frightening to the people who are hearing it. Okay. This is when Jesus is telling the disciples about Judas. He doesn't actually name him, but about somebody within their group who is going to, uh, to betray him. Here's how he says it. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you this. Now catch this part. Now I tell you this before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. So when he's telling them, I'm, I'm, I'm explaining what's going to happen. This scary, tragic, frightening, awful thing is going to happen. One of my disciples is going to betray me. And I'm telling you this now so that when it comes to pass, your faith will be strong. Okay? It is my belief that this is a definition of why Revelation is written. The book of Revelation is written so that when these things come to pass, your faith will be strong. You will be able to look at the events that transpire and say, well, God knew about this. He has a plan for it. And we're okay. Okay? God knew about this. He has a plan for it, and we're okay. 
So Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 says this. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that of can be translated of, by, from, several places. And depending on how we want to make our emphasis, you can take it in several different ways. Which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take, take place. I want you to notice the word show. He came to reveal. He came to show things that are coming. He came to show things that are shortly coming to pass. Okay? So as we, go, if, as we make our quick fly, fly through this week, last week I did it without any real slides for you to look at. So I'm going to give you a fly over this week, but we're going to put some slides up because now you're getting two resources. You're getting your, the, your audio resource and your visual resource to try to help remember it. Okay? Am I making funny noises? Okay. Only one funny noise? Okay. So number one, it's a revelation from Jesus. Chapter one says Jesus is engaged. He's walking among the churches. He's holding the messengers to the churches in his right hand, right? He's engaged. He's connected with the things that are happening to the church, even in the first century, the persecutions that are following, the people who are opposed to them, the Jewish church is opposed to them. Rome is opposed to them. With all that opposition and all that struggle, he's saying, I'm here. I'm in the middle of what's going on with the churches and I'm engaged. I haven't disappeared into heaven and left you to find your way on your own. I'm here. I'm with you and I'm engaged. Um, this uh, last, let's see, a week ago this Thursday, uh, about uh, eight or nine of us in, from our church went to a leadership conference. And uh, one of the, one of the lead speakers, his name is Bill Hybels, was speaking about his childhood. And he talked about his father. And he said, you know, being Dutch, his father had a different way of approaching parenting. And he said... <clears throat> My dad, I told my dad, I had tried skiing and I really liked it and I wanted to learn how to do it better. I wanted lessons. And they were a family that had means and so his father arranged for him to have lessons. And he came to him after the arrangements were made and he said, okay, son, I've made the arrangements for your lessons. And he handed him a plane ticket and he said, you're going to, uh, to Aspen, Colorado and you're going to go, go have lessons, which was kind of cool, except that he was nine. <laughs> and he said... Uh, Here's the deal. Here's your stuff. You know, you're going to go to, to and go to do this, go to take these lessons. And his son said, well, son, dad, how will I know when I get to the to the to the airport how to get to the to the town? And he said, figure it out. And he said, well, how will I know when I get to the town how to find the place where I'm supposed to ski and take my lessons? And his dad said, figure it out. And then he added this, and Heibel said, this cost me $50,000 of, of therapy. Don't call me. See, most of us take the opinion or, or seem to have some opinion of God that's more close to that than what Revelation is saying. We seem to feel like we're on our own. Like God has said, all right, here you go. You're in the world. It's falling apart. Sorry. Figure it out. Don't call me. But it's just the opposite. He said, I'm engaged, I'm connected, I'm involved, I'm with you, I'm holding the messengers to the church in my right hand, call me anytime. It's just the opposite picture. I will help you, I will walk with you, I'll help you figure it out. Call me when you have a need. Call me whenever you have a need. Chapters 2 and 3 de- then demonstrate that through the history of the church. The history of the church is laid out, and every time the answer to the church's problem is Jesus. Those, those chapters go through, and it's every single time when there's a problem, the answer to the church's problem is Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 21 ends like this. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, and I also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
That's the end of chapter 3. The opening of chapter 4 shows Jesus in the sanctuary with his father. 4 and 5 are the coronation of Jesus. So now he's saying, I will grant this to you. Now look at what it is. Here's a revealing of the throne room. Here's a revealing of the picture. Understand who I am. When you knew me, I was just the son of a carpenter. What you really don't understand is I'm the son of the king. That I am the Messiah. And he shows them the coronation experience. And he shows the world's bowing at his feet and worshiping him so that they will understand who who he really is. The one engaged with you is God himself. The one engaged with you has all power and all authority in heaven and earth. And the chapter 6, verse 17 ends, For the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? As as Jesus starts to open the seals, the seals start to reveal all of these things. Greg shared with you the four horsemen of the apocalypse that come out in the beginning. And then you start rolling toward the end of time, the second coming at the end, as the sixth seal is opened. (coughs) And when when the sixth seal is opened, the people of the earth are looking at this terrible thing and this is their response the great day of his wrath it's the wrath of the lamb a little of the irony is lost on us isn't it thank you that actually really helped Chris. audience participation The wrath of the Lamb has come. What they're saying is that the second coming, Jesus returned. And as Jesus returns, everybody's frightened. Who will be able to stand? The question is the closing of chapter 6. Chapter 7 starts out, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels who who had granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea, the trees, till I have sealed my servants, or the servants of God, on their foreheads. Who's going to be able to stand? The answer comes back. Those who follow God. He's sealing them. He's marking them. He's holding back those winds of strife until that marking is done. What is the question? Who's going to be able to stand? What is the answer? The ones Jesus has covered. The ones Jesus has sealed. The ones that are in his care. That's his answer. And he continues to do this. He presents this story which unfolds with the real history of mankind. He doesn't gloss it over. He paints it pretty starkly. And when we see how stark it is and how all the events that are unfolding, it gets a little frightening to us. And each time he steps into the story and he says, it's okay. I have a plan for this. I've made a plan for this. I've arranged for this. And that keeps being the repeated idea over and over in the book. The seals end with a crash. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it to the earth, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Pastor Greg shared, with, shared, with, shared this with us a couple of years ago. It stuck with me. I actually went and found the research paper that uh, it's like eight pages on this one, on this little two-verse section. But what's, when you look at this passage, here's what you have to know. That at the end of the day, a very particular thing happened every day. The priests came in who was making the sacrifice for the, for the final day, the Tommy, the daily sacrifice. Remember, there's one in the morning and one in the evening. When he was making the evening sacrifice for the people, there was always an, a sacrifice on the altar to symbolize and to make clear to the people that they were always covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so when that evening sacrifice was being made, about 6 o'clock in the evening, the sacrifice was being prepared... A priest would come and he would take like this shovel looking thing. It actually think of it like those things that go under people's beds in the old days. They would fill them up with coals or hot rocks and close the lid and put them under the bed to keep them warm. More similar to that than a typical shovel. It would kind of a scoop that he would take. And he would take some of the hot coals from the altar and he'd take those hot coals and he'd give them to the priest who was going to be putting um, 
the uh, incense in on the on the incense altar for the evening. So the prayers of the saints were heard all night as well. In this moment, the Tamid says that when he had taken those those coals and put them in the incense, and the incense was beginning to fill the, the holy place with the priest. They would take this shovel thing that they used and they would throw it across the limestone floor and it would crash across the floor and make this horrendous sound. They did it on purpose because what this was was a signal. It was a, it was, it was a signal that the altar the altar of incense was covered and the incense was lifted, that the tamid, the, the sacrifice for the daily, was on the altar and the smoke was lifting, and the trumpet would blow at the end of the day, sounding that all is well. God has you covered by the blood of the Lamb. What's being pictured here is that moment. You and I don't get it because we didn't live in first century Israel. We didn't know about this event. We didn't know that they were throwing shovels around on the floor to make people know what was happening out there. They said, they, they, now, I, I, so things get stretched. They said this sound of the shovel hitting, the, hitting the, the, the ground was so loud that two people talking anywhere in Jerusalem could not hear the other person when they spoke. And this is where I think the stretch maybe goes. This, that, I can maybe buy that. They're on a hill. It's, you know, big bronze shovel or big brass shovel. But they said it could be heard all the way down in Jericho. That's 17 miles away down the hill. That's a long sound. And it's going to be delayed by a few minutes. But... I don't know. Maybe it was. But what we do know is when this thing gets thrown on the ground, the trumpets begin to blow. The trumpets that are blowing at the end of the day say, God has his grace. The lamb's blood is covering you. The trumpets then blow. And as they blow, they start to share. These seven angels that blow the trumpets start to sound. And they start to blow out the, the, the things that look like the plagues that fell on Egypt. Here's what I want you to think about. When the plagues fell on Egypt, was it good news or bad news for the Israelis? It was good news. You see, we read these, we read these trumpets blowing and we think, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. The reality is these trumpets are trumpets from God's angels in support of his people. These trumpets are hailing the coming of this Messiah. They're hailing the end when sin will be no more. In the fifth of the seals, there was this interesting thing that happened. The souls of those who had died for their faith cry out to God. Do you remember what they cry out? They cry out from under the altar. The blood cries out from under the altar like Abel's blood cried out from the ground before God. And cries out and asks for him to stop this. How long will you let this continue? How long will you let them treat us like this is what the real question is. The trumpets begin to blow. This this thing is cast on the ground. And the answer is, a little while longer, but I have even this covered. Okay? Chapters 10 and 11, we talked about um, a couple weeks ago, that bittersweet experience that draws a conclusion to all of the time prophecies. Okay? Those time prophecies come to an end, and this is what's really being described. But at the end of these time prophecies, the Bible says the closing of this bittersweet experience is keep on talking. Keep telling people. You must prophesy again. You have to keep doing it. Don't stop just because the time prophecy stopped. Chapter 12, we talked about last week. There's a battle going on behind the scenes. Now, this is to me, if we had, this is where I wish we had a giant curtain. We could just pull it back and show you some, you know, look, it's a new car back there. Okay? Because it's the revealing, it's, the, it's, the, it's an even deeper opening of things. 
What's happening in chapter 12 is God is saying, you've seen all of this stuff going on, and I'm telling you I have it. I've got it. I'm okay. I've got you covered. But I want you to see that behind this is another problem, a bigger controversy, a bigger conflict. And the conflict began in heaven itself. And this is where sin arose, and, it, and, and it was, its origins are between this, in this battle with the dragon, Satan, the old serpent, the devil himself, and Christ himself. And I told you before, I, I believe Michael is, an, is, is Christ in angel flesh. Okay? The second member of the Godhead in angel physiognomy. Okay? That battle goes on, and what is, it, what is stated about the battle? He wins. What then happens to the devil? He's cast to the earth. What have we just been told? How we got into this mess. Okay? There's a revealing... This chapter ends with the dragon enraged with the woman. He went out to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. It's interesting with me. It's interesting to me. This is like a fight starts. And this fight's going on between two grown-ups. And the one who loses says, oh, fine, I'll go pick on your kids. That's what's happened here. He lost the battle with Michael, the archangel. And so what does he do? He goes after the children. He goes after his kids. And he goes out to make war with the remnant, with that, that group that's staying faithful to God. He goes out to make war with them. And then chapter 13 opens up with the picture of our future. Here's where we find ourselves, between 12 and 13. Okay? What I want you to understand, I want you to notice the curtain opens on our future. Now, when the first century person got these books and they started reading them in church, almost all of this was future. When they were reading them in the first century, almost everything they read was coming in the future, coming in the future, coming in the future. When we cross this line from 12 to 13 is when our future starts to unroll in, in, in this picture and in this story. <clears throat> the beast that comes up, it comes out, it's opposing God's people. But what we're being told is behind the scenes again is the dragon. The one causing all the conflict, the one causing all the problems is the devil himself. We keep thinking that it's people and it's the, it's the military and it's the government and it's this and it's that. And he's saying, no, 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 all of those things are just tools. Those are just implements of what the dragon is doing. The dragon is the one doing all the damage. The dragon, this devil himself, is the one causing all of these things. And as the battle unfolds, he says two things we can really be sure about. That we can really be sure about. Now, we, we argue and we think we know who these people are and we try to put, put it forward and we have some ideas, okay? I'm not going to give you the ideas today. I'm just going to give you what I know is clear in the scripture. The text says the devil's behind it and he's operating in the same way he's always operated. There's going to be a religio-political unification at the end of time forcing people to behave in the way the government religion wants them to behave. Is that clear from the text? That is what the text is saying. It's saying that there's a, a in fact, this beast that comes up that arises, it looks like those beasts we saw in Daniel 7 a couple months ago that you don't remember anymore. Looks just like them. He's got all their parts mixed up into this one. The horns, that, the, the, the heads that had the, the crowns on them in the previous chapter, now the crowns are on the horns, signifying we're in a different time. But it's a conglomerate saying, look, the dragon's been behind all of these empires, been behind all of these governments, been behind all of this persecution all along. 
Now, let me ask you a question. Who won the battle in chapter 12? God did, right? So the dragon, with all of his noise and all that's going on in chapter 13, is a defeated foe, right? He can gesticulate and fight and argue and spit and cuss all he wants. But at the end of the day, he's already been beaten. Don't allow any of these parts to frighten you. God did not record Revelation 13 to frighten us about the end of time. He wrote Revelation 13 to inform us about the end of time. To reveal that governments would get back to the same business they had been in before. That you've had a respite, you've had a break, but it's not going to be forever. There's going to be the same kind of nastiness that has always gone on. Governments moved by the dragon will act like the beast And they will engage the people of God and threaten the people of God and cause both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark. Hold on just a second. Jesus says in chapter 7, before the winds of strife comes, I'll seal my people. Right? Then we come down here to chapter 13. And what do we find? We find the devil saying, before we let you buy or sell, we're going to seal our people. In the forehead or in the right hand? Forehead being you're going along with it. Right hand being you're just going along to get along. You either buy in or you just get along. Okay? Devil will take you either way. God wants your whole heart. The seal of God is always on your forehead because he wants all of you. He wants the commitment of your life and your mind and your heart and your soul. He doesn't just want your hands involved. Problem in church. Can I just say that there's a problem in church? Sometimes we just get our hands involved. Right? Sometimes we just, we just say, okay, I'm just going to go along with this church thing. I'm just going to do some stuff. I'm just going to pretend that this whole church thing works. Do you know there's a commandment against that? It's in the top ten. God has a top ten list. You didn't realize that. God has a top ten list. And number one is number one, by the way. The commandment that says... You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain is not about cursing. Paul will later say, don't use coarse language. So we're we're covered there. Just in case you thought, oh, now I can curse. Nope. (laughs) It's about faking it. It's about claiming to be a believer and not really being one. You know, the greatest damage to Christianity is not not done by people who oppose it. It's done by people who claim to be followers of Jesus who act like the devil. And all of us, to some degree or another, are on that paradigm, aren't we? You get behind the wheel of your car and you become demon-possessed. I've told you, I get on the freeway and my first thought is, I could win this. I want you to understand the call at the end of time of God is he wants all of your heart. The call of God at the beginning of time is he wants all of your heart. The call of God in the middle of time is he wants all of your heart. It's never changed. Devil will take any part of you he can get. So he gets you away from God. If you're in the church and the only part of your church of, of you that's here is your hands, you're a busy bee, you work, you get stuff done, you do stuff, but your heart's not here. This text is for you. This challenge is for you. The devil says, I'll take the people however I can get them, hand or head. The next verse, 
Remember the chapter divisions are, are, are inserted later. The next verse, I look and behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000. Oh, by the way, we saw these back in chapter 7. You know what happened to these people? Sealed in their forehead. The 144,000 having his father's name written. You can, you can get rid of your L. Make it a J. You know, we're kind of born with this. But we get this. Somebody says, oh, yeah, he's a born loser. It's true. But I'm newborn. In Christ. Stamped with the name of God on my head. Not because my hands are always doing the right thing. But because my heart has been given to Jesus. I want to challenge you if you are on the fence with this. Maybe all you'll give to Jesus is your wallet. He loves your wallet. He wants your heart. He loves your hands, but he wants your heart. He loves your feet, but he wants your heart. He wants every part of it. He wants you to get your heart because he knows when he gets your heart, everything else comes with it. The 144,000 is the answer to chapter 13. 13 is this threat. The devil goes out shouting, if you don't follow me, you won't be able to buy or sell. In fact, I'll kill you if I catch you. And God says, hold on. Remember chapter 7? Remember all that? I told you, winds of strife, the angels are holding them back. You remember what happened in chapter 7? I sealed the people of God in their foreheads with my very own name. And these people are under my care and under my keeping. I want to mention this 144,000. It causes so much concern. Because there are lots of folks out there, some of them have knocked on my door, who claim that this is a literal number. I don't see it scripturally. Chapter 7 says there are 12,000 from each of the 12 original tribes of Israel. By the way, if you pay attention to this, these are not the tribes as described in the promised land. These are the tribes as they were born from their mother. Yeah, I forgot there were some mothers, not just one. Okay. 12 times 12 times 1,000. That's how you get the 144,000. They're virgin males who've never lied and who are without fault. So if 144,000 is a literal number, all of it has to be literal. You can't flip this over halfway through and say, oh, well, the, the, all that other stuff is symbolic, but the number's literal. No. You can't ride two horses through the stream and jump on one or the other. You get on the horse, you go through the stream, you stay on the horse till you get done. Changing horses in the middle of the stream just gets you drowned. This is a symbolic figure, a symbolic number. And when you get to the city of God, you find the city of God uses the same numbers because the city of God was built for the people of God. Amen. This is not some, some prediction of only how many people are going to be saved. If that's all, we might as well just give up now. On the planet today, 7 billion people. 144,000 of those are going to survive? 
I'm not buying it. There's too much symbolic, figurative language here. And if you go back to chapter 7, he hears those 144,000 described, 12 times 12 of every, or 12 of 12,000, every tribe of Israel. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, of all the tribes of the children of Israel that were sealed. And then he enumerates the tribes, okay? After these things I looked and behold what? A great multitude which no one could number from all the nations, tribes, and people and tongues. What is he describing? He's saying, this is what I heard, but this is what I saw. And what I saw was the invasion of God's Holy Spirit into the whole world. And the triumph of God in winning the hearts of men across the entire world. The people who are sealed of God, who are covered by his righteousness, who are wearing the white robes. You know who they are? Everybody who chooses Jesus. He goes on, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our salvation comes from God and from the sacrifice of Jesus. That's their testimony. And that's why they go from this to this. Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads and heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. You need not be fearful of this. I have you in my care. Chapter 14 is supposed to remind you of chapter 7 and tell you, oh, that's right. The devil's saying, I've got to receive his mark in my forehead. I've got to receive his mark in my hand. And God says, no, 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 no. It, you don't want his mark. You want my mark. Remember, I showed you back in seven. I marked and sealed my people and protected them against him. He's defeated already. I showed you in chapter 12. I beat him thousands of years ago back in heaven when he first rebelled. And he gets, went to the earth and you guys invited yourself in the battle. Sorry, but I can take care of that too. Quickly through... The three angels' message as righteousness by faith in verity. Truthfully, with a solid foundation of truth. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. What is this angel preaching? The everlasting what? Gospel. This angel is preaching the good news about Jesus. This angel is preaching that you don't have to be stuck in this state. You don't have to have the big L on your forehead. You can change it. Jesus can change it. He will change it. The gospel is still available, the first angel says. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Whether that judgment is a judgment of God and his character, which is what I believe, or a judgment that's coming at the end of the world, doesn't change the fact that the gospel is the answer to what is coming, right? Second angel comes out. Saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, the great city, because she, may, she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. You know what this is saying? False religion creates only suffering. It's not an answer. It creates only suffering. When you're trying really hard to do your best all the time, you know what you find out? Your best isn't that good. 
False religion creates suffering. When you're trying to get yourself all aligned with those seven secret laws that some monk figured out somewhere back in the desert when he was starving to death, when you're trying to align your life with that, seem like pretty good rules, pretty good regulations. You know what you find out? You can't even keep those that some monk figured out really well. Pastor Greg and I have been telling you for years, the Ten Commandments, one of the greatest revelations of the Ten Commandments is that you need Jesus. One of the greatest and most significant elements about the law is that they show you how badly you need Jesus. Show you how badly you need him as the answer. Babylon has fallen is simply telling you all the other answers that people have been giving you don't work. They tried to build a tower on the plain of Babel to save themselves. How'd that work? Not so good. Babylon had all of these gods, gods of the sea, gods of the sun, gods of the rain, gods of this and that. How did they work? Not so good when you're paying to a rock or a lump or, a, or whatever else, a, a tortilla that has a face on it. It doesn't work. That's the description spiritually of the second angel. He's saying nothing works but Jesus. There is an answer to your problem. It's the good news about Jesus. Nothing else works. Is this a scary message? No, it's calling you back to the reality that following Jesus is the only answer. It's a revelation that there is an answer, and that answer is Jesus. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. It isn't going to change. You're not your own answer. Jesus is the answer. And no matter whether you baptize your pagan behavior and call it Christianity or not, it doesn't work. There are lots of Christians, as there are lots of Christians trying to just get along by fixing, throwing their hands into the ring in the church. There are lots of believers who have brought paganism into the church. And I'm not talking about the holidays. I'm talking about the behaviors. I'm talking about the choices we make. Sure, we could talk all, long, all day long about the sinful choices we make. I want to talk about the good choices we make. Everybody knows that you make bad choices, right? Do you ever know that, ever realize that your good choices can be bad? The real issue with this Babylon has fallen stuff is if you're trying to manipulate God with your good choices, you're on the wrong side of this discussion. God cannot be manipulated by mankind. We can't make God do things. The day that you and I are able to make God do something, we got elected God. That's back in the garden. Oh, by the way, Eve, eat this apple, and then you will be like God. We have baptized that idea into Christianity and tried to make our behaviors merit our salvation. Over and over and over again, we're being told in the Scriptures. We're being told by everybody under the sun who reads the Bible. That doesn't work. Yet because our hearts and our lives are built on actions, produce reactions, we try to do that in Christianity. Can I just tell you, the second angel says, stop! Behavior doesn't change God's attitude towards you. While you were yet sinners, while you were enemies, Christ died for you. He died just so you had the chance to choose him. You are not changing his attitudes about you by your behavior. You're changing your behavior because of his attitude about you. You fall in love with him and things change. You fall in love with him and you do things that his heart is calling you to do because you've fallen in love with him. 
Not so that you can make him love you more or make him get you in or manipulate him to make him save you. It's not going to happen. The second angel, the second half of righteousness by faith and verity, the gospel is the answer. Everything else is not. Righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. Third angel comes. This is the one that scares everybody. Third angel followed saying with a loud voice, what is the if? If you continue, if you still decide you want to worship the beast and his image, if the threatenings of the beast have convinced you, if his authority and his power has convinced you, if you receive his mark on his forehead or your hand, you shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. You want to know what the wrath of God is? And we read this passage like like God's some despot from the Iron Age. Like he's some tyrant. And he's just had enough of you guys. And he's going to Chop off your heads and put them on pikes. (laughs) It's crazy. It's happening today. We read this passage like God is so angry with you people. He's done. And he's going to come personally and whack you. You know what the wrath of God is? On the last day of Earth's history, Pastor Greg's going to finish, wrap this all up. He's going to take you back to chapter 2 and 3 and cover the seven churches next week. And then he's going to cover the end of sin. Remember this when he gets there. You know what the wrath of God finally is? It's allowing the results, the normal results of sin to take place. You know what we've been experiencing all this time up to now? The mercy and protection of God. And the day is going to come when he parts the veil between good and evil, between man and himself, between sin and righteousness, and the natural consequences of sin, which is death, will finally be allowed to happen. Now he gets very explicit in the next five chapters. Very explicit. And I think it is the same as my driving instructor movies. Some of you are too young to have been scared straight when you're driving instructors. When I was in high school, everybody went into this big auditorium to see the class to, for, the, for the driving instruction class. I was, I was in a high school of 4,000 kids, so there were a lot of us turning 16. To get your permit, you had to take this class. They ran it at the school. And we all went in. We filled it up. There were probably about this many people in there. And they showed the movie, Blood on the Streets. And we saw car accidents. And we saw the results of car accidents. And we saw the people after the car accident. We saw them trying to put them in the ambulance. There was lots of blood on the street. The image that stuck in my mind is somebody who got thrown from their car. And the ambulance driver has come up to them. And he starts to move them. 
And he realizes that they've been dramatically hurt. And they're saying, don't move me, don't move me, don't move me. And the guy's got two hands full of grass. And he's screaming at this ambulance driver, don't move me, don't move me, don't move me. I'm 53 years old. That movie worked. This description that follows as it rolls out and tells you what happens at the end of time is simply saying, I offer you, as Moses did, life and death. Choose life. And he explicitly describes it because he wants us to know what the stakes are. Have at least the good sense to not want to die. The scripture that says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom has lots of implications, but at least at its core, at the bottom, have the good sense not to want to die. Have the good sense not to want to deal with this and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as simple as he died, so you don't have to. Here is the patience of the saints. Interjected in the middle of this, uh uh-oh, the wrath of God is coming. You're right. No. Interjected after these statements about the wrath of God. Here is the patience of the saints. Here's how they endure this. Here's how they get through this. Here's how they deal with it. These are those who have learned to obey God. Keep the commandments just simply means they've learned to obey God. And they've learned to trust in faith in Jesus. They've learned to trust Jesus. And they've learned to obey God. And that's what's going to get them through. He says, if you choose this side, it's really bad for you, but you don't have to. These other people who are sealed are sealed because they've chosen Jesus and they've learned to trust him and they've learned to follow him. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man. Who's that? Jesus. He says, this end that's happening, it's the coming of Jesus. On his head's a golden crown. And in his hand is a sickle with which he will reap his people from the earth. And the rest will be destroyed. And 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Explain what's happening there. Why? Because if you're not smart enough to make the decision because of the good things that are available, maybe you'll at least be smart enough to make the decision out of fear. At least be smart enough to choose life. The first angel says the gospel's still available. The second angel says everything, you else, everything else you've ever tried doesn't work. And the third angel says the consequences of not making this choice are eternal. Righteousness by faith. Father, we ask your blessing.
as we seek to follow you. Help us to see in the revelation that you provide that you are trying to draw us to yourself. That you are trying to make us one with you. That you're not trying to scare us. You're trying to inform us. And help us not to use these passages to try to scare other people. Help us just to make the picture clear that these are eternal decisions that affect everything. And that you really need to choose Jesus. Thank you for being willing to go to such lengths to save the likes of us. In your name we pray. Amen.